Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music, a channel of the New Books Network. My guest today is Dr. David Garcia. In his new book, Listening for Africa, Freedom, Modernity, and the Logic of Black Music's African Origins, Garcia reminds us that how culture is understood and interpreted not only reflects the political and social discourses of the day, but also shapes those discussions. Drawing on figures as diverse as academics like Melville Herskovitz, performers such as Duke Ellington, and those like dancer-anthropologist Catherine Dunham, who filled multiple roles, Garcia lays bare the ways that people in the Americas from the 1930s until the 1950s understood the African origins of Black music and dance. He is particularly interested in how the discourse about African retentions in Black diasporic culture intensified cultural, political, and social dichotomies, primal versus civilized, science versus magic, Black versus white, and most importantly, modernity versus primitivity. Garcia argues these concepts were defined in terms of each other, with the politically dominant groups reinforcing positive connotations with the ideas they identified with themselves. Proceeding in broadly chronological order, Garcia begins with a critique of the intellectual foundations of the discipline that we now call ethnomusicology, and explores how the approaches taken by some of the prominent figures in the field to African retentions in black music and dance were fundamentally influenced by scientific principles and Freudian psychology. Moving from academia to performance, Garcia expands his argument by considering the rhetoric around black music and dance in the United States, the Caribbean, and Mexico, as well as analyzing individual works and performances by Catherine Dunham, Asada Dafora, Madupe Paris, Duke Ellington, and others. The book ends with a close reading of the cultural and political implications of the mambo, which was a transnational dance phenomenon in the early 1950s. Welcome, Dr. Garcia. I'm so glad you could join me today to talk about your new book, Listening for Africa, Freedom, Modernity, and the Logic of Black Music's African Origins. It's great to be here, Kristen. Uh, so I have a lot of questions for you. This is certainly a complicated, dense book, but I want to just start with uh, talking a little bit about why you chose to write this book. Your first book was a biography of Arsenio Rodriguez, who, of course, is a great Afro-Cuban jazz musician. What made you want to move from that sort of more specific topic to something as um, capacious as this one? Well, there was actually a direct correct a connection to this topic of the second book from the Arsenio Rodriguez project, uh, which was I felt like I wanted to have a broader understanding of race relations in the mid twentieth century, race, blackness, national identity in Cuba and the United States was an important part were important parts of the Arsenio book. Uh, but it was because it's, it was a biography, it, it was all sort of centered around him and his uh, most uh, direct musical community, both in New York and Havana and later on in Los Angeles. So pretty much, I think maybe even before I finished the Arsenio book, I felt like I, I knew what the next project was going to be, which was understanding blackness in a much broader context mostly in the United States, but still also including including Cuba. And that's really 
what the second book became. What the case studies were, how I was going to do it, that was a little unclear to me at the beginning, but it all developed as I began uh, and jumped into the research. Well, that brings up something that I wanted to talk about was actually how you decided what people you were going to focus on and why also you decided to talk about both music and dance um, rather than just focusing on music. So I know those are two big questions, but defining the scope of this book looked to me like it must have been a real project and, and you know, sort of what were your criteria for deciding? Yes. So the fifth chapter focuses on Mambo and the topic of the Mambo was actually how I visualized the book first. I was, in other words, I was going to use the Mambo since it was an international popular style of music and dance throughout the Americas and beyond. I, I thought that I could actually do two things at once, study the meaning of blackness in the mid 20th century through the Mambo. Um, and, and, uh, but as it turned out, the Mambo became the last chapter of the book because as I began researching Mambo in particular, at some point it led me to Melville Herskovitz. Um, not only the Mambo per se, but my, my interest in understanding the discourse of Africa as origin of, for example, the Mambo. And, um, and so for other reasons also, it led me to anthropology and, and Melville Herskovitz being considered one of the founders of, of, uh, of modern Afro-diasporic studies. So that's when that was my first big sort of transition in the research project, which led me to, to the Melville Herskovitz archive or collection at Northwestern University. And I spent almost a year just obsessing over Herskovitz and, and learning about him and digging in his papers, his letters, uh, of course, reading his articles and, and books and all that. And in the middle of that work on that particular case study, then I realized and encountered Catherine Dunham. So I had already had dance on as one of my targets via Mambo. Um, and I had actually already published an article on Mambo uh, music and dance in New York. And I was already theorizing the interconnections between dance and music uh, with respect to the discourse on, on, uh, primitivity african african primitivity african essence and so forth but then then catherine dunham and hersingovitz really blew the topic up to encompass so much more than how i originally conceived it um one of the i guess i would say topics that really runs through the whole book is you wrestling with the idea of modernity and the idea of primitive or primitivity and how those terms are I know, almost defining each other, or at least modernity is defining itself versus primitivity. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how that is an organizing principle to this book? And, you know, what did the people that you are discussing, what did they think they meant by primitive and modern? I think they meant quite literally um, going back in time or experiencing, seeing, hearing, feeling the past via um, specific kinds of music and dance expression by black bodies. I, I think that's the sort of the, the most concise way I could, I can articulate sort of how I was theorized or how I came to theorize 
uh, and, and then ultimately decide to use modernity as like a framework. And yes, you're, you know, you're right. It's, it's modernity, modernity def, uh, defining primitivity for its own sake. Um, and so if, if in, in reading the first sentence even, or the first paragraph of, of the introduction, I, I don't necessarily deal with blackness or even Mambo or Herskovitz per se. I deal with time and space and I use race and the idea of race as a construct to, to, to set the groundwork immediately by saying like race, time and space are constructs, social constructs. Uh, specific to to particular historical contexts upon which ideas are built, and in this case, the idea that uh, music and and dance, as performed by black bodies, were were one way in which people, not only anthropologists but others, political activists, uh, in, in the in the mid in the from the thirties through the early fifties, were understanding history. And their place in it, most importantly. So, do you think that someone like, say, a Herskovitz um, thought of primitivity as a negative thing? I mean, so often when you see that discourse, it's interpreted as, you know, there is basically disrespectful of black music and African music to call it primitive and to call people who perform that primitive. But do you think that's what the people that you particularly looking at were thinking of it, or? Or was there something else going on? No, that's a, that's a, an important an important question. No, I don't think Herskovitz felt that uh, uh, that primitivity was negative per se. He, although he was very sensitive to modernist primitivist art <laughs> and modern dancers like Catherine Dunham. Dunham actually, uh, he 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 appreciated it the sort of uh, modernist expressive arts that fell under the stylistic category of prim- primitivity. Uh, but he understood and was very careful to say, but that's not African art, right? Um, and and for him, it was very important that to understand the African past of, of Black ex- expressive cultures of the Americas, that it had to be scientific. And that's where modernity for me, anyway, comes back into play for uh, in in critiquing Herskovitz's thinking. On the one hand, he was very very anti-racist. His whole reason for doing his scholarship was to address racism throughout the Americas, and as I discuss in chapters um, one and two of the book. Uh, with the rise of Nazism and, and fascism in, in Europe, he was he, he believed <laughs> that, and there was no doubt in his mind that anthropology could make a difference in persuading races to think otherwise. But of course, the way he went about it, there were, uh, is what I critique in, in that in his belief that. To do this scientific work, one had to go to the field, the anthropological field. And for him, like so many other anthropologists at the time and before him, generations before him going to the 19th century, that literally meant going back in time. And as a result, that in and of itself was a violent gesture toward the people that he studied in Suriname or in the Caribbean and and also, of course, West Africa, that he believed that they were living in the past. And that in and of itself is... Uh, sort of puts them in a 
in a in a, a space and a time apart from the modern man, quote unquote, right? Yeah, that's it's so interesting to I mean, we just can't ever get away from our own cultural moment, right? It's like it's you're sort of it's or at least it's very difficult. So um you see them sort of re reifying the very idea that they are trying to get away from at the same time. And so that's why I had to go and bring in other case studies, or as I continue to research, it, it, it wasn't just anthropology's problem. It wasn't just Herskovitz's problem. It was, um, it was fundamental to, and it still is in so many ways, actually, but it was fundamental to the time, the mid-20th century. Um, I think the, the rise of uh, fascism in Europe, World War II, and then um, uh, atomic nuclear technology, all of that, I, I try to argue anyway in the book, are all interrelated and played crucial parts in why all of this mattered and why it made sense to people at the time. So it wasn't just anthropology. It wasn't just about comparative musicology. It was in um, in modern dance. It was in popular music. It was in film, and not only in the United States, but Mexican film, um, uh, uh, popular dance in South America, Catholicism, uh, you know, all of this. And so, so this is what I try to tie in all together and bring into sort of one story. And of course, that's what makes the book so rich is that you are finding so many different threads and trying to weave them all together in sort of one thick rope, so to speak. Can you maybe expand a little bit upon, you know, how you made sense of all these different aspects of that period coming together within this sort of discourse of modernity versus primitive? Yeah, I think I think for me the key was to pay attention to the discourse at the time. Whether again it was coming from uh, Liscano, who was a Venezuelan folklorist, um, or from the newsprint, uh, for example, concert reviews or record reviews of Perez Prado performing in Lima or in Los Angeles, or published in Downbeat, uh, that is written either in Spanish or English. It was that discourse that that for me I tried to isolate as as um, the the African origins of black music, right? So whether it, it had to whether it included words or concepts like the savage or the primitive or the bush, uh, uh, or for that matter, uh, uh, the modern. Um, Art or classical, so all of those concepts are, are working together to to make these categories, to make these distinctions between the past, the present, black, white, modern, not modern, um, for all for all for mundane purposes. Whether it was coming from the Catholic Church or uh, uh, utilized by Mexican film directors or by jazz um, journalists publishing in, in in downbeat or even African-American jazz musicians like Dizzy Gillespie in, in his encounter and collaboration with uh, black Cuban percussionist composer Chano Poso. It was as if, you know, this was the language that everybody spoke that, that were interested in, in dealing with in one way or another black music at the time. Um, 
So that brings me around again to one of the things that you talk about is how sort of the language and the concepts of other disciplines outside of um, outside of cultural anthropology and comparative musicology, which are sort of the forebears to ethno, modern ethnomusicology, how there's these other ideas fed into creating um, the field we know today. I mean, the first part of this book really was read a little bit as a at least partial history of the intellectual foundations of ethnomusicology, at least to me. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, starting with, you know, why was science important to them? You use science in sort of this very broad term, but what about science was important to the academics that you are talking uh, are talking about in this book? Yeah, I'm really glad that that's, that's what you got out of the first two chapters, because that's exactly what I intended to do, um, to start it off as a historiography of early ethnomusicology in the United States, uh, mostly anyway. Um, and so continuing on what I have, I've already said about Herskovitz and the importance that the idea of science had for him, uh, and actually I should probably expand on that. So because he, he, I think he was really sensitive to being for example, being or mainly because he was uh, Jewish American, uh, being very interested in dealing with discrimination and racism in in American society, that be, because of the the um, epistemology of academia at the time, uh, that the the idea of science was the only way. Uh, one could do a, a proper scholarship. One of the ways that idea came out um, was, or that that belief came out, was Herskovitz's, Herskovitz's relationship with Catherine Dunham, who was already a professional dancer. And on the one hand, I believe he took Catherine Dunham seriously as a young African American woman who wanted to be, who wanted to study dance as a scientist. Um, and, and she bought into that idea as well, uh, but she was also an artist at the same time. And she, and like so many graduate students uh, today and in the past, she was an artist, and she also needed to pay the bills. And so there were many instances in their correspondences and in her experience in general, it, being a graduate student of anthropology at the University of Chicago. There was there was evidence that she wasn't taken as seriously as she should have because she was a dancer, not to mention also that she was black and, and a woman. All of those three were still getting in the way, even of, of Herskovitz taking full, um, buying in completely and 100% into mentoring her as an emerging scholar, like he did with Richard Waterman, like he did with William Bascom. Um, the, so gender is a part of my historiographical analysis in those first two chapters. And so, um, so transitioning then into the forties, he took Waterman and Bascom seriously, but it, it wasn't only, it wasn't because they were not artists or musicians or performers like Catherine Dunham was, it was also obviously because they were white and they were male. To answer, to come back to your question then, 
that was just the thinking at the time, I believe, for in the humanities especially, was that it was scientific work, not unlike the scientific work that was being done in sociology or in the harder sciences. And and one of the ways I try to uh, use as evidence for this is is the importance that measurement had for um, Richard Waterman in particular as the comparative musicologist, because Herskovitz wasn't a comparative musicologist, neither was William Bascom, but they had interests in, in music and studying music um, and to a certain extent dance via uh, their, his Herskovitz's mentoring of Catherine Dunham. But uh, Richard Waterman was a musician and he was a comparative musicologist and eventually became uh, one of the earlier, earliest members of the Society for Ethnomusicology. Uh, but one of the things that he got from his mentor, Herskovitz, was this idea of measurement, that that's how you did music um, in a scientific way. So me- me- measuring scales, me- measuring, measuring intervals, <laughs> you know, uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was really struck by you reproduce actually Waterman's this this uh, worksheet where they literally were counting the number of intervals and uh, you know the instances of particular phenomena within the music in a way that just seemed so outside of music to me. <laughs> you know, it seemed like such a strange way to quantify music, but. It did seem like this was the way that you do science and music is you count things just like you're counting, you know, I don't know, the number of frogs in a in a square mile or something. That's exactly right. And, you know, it wasn't just um, Waterman uh, learning those methodologies from Herskovitz. It actually came via uh, German Jewish scholars that Herskovitz initially partnered with in the 1930s before um, Hornbostel and Kalinsky. Uh, became refugees, leaving Germany in, uh, in 1933. And so it really, those ki- those methodologies, those techniques of transcribing Re- Herskovitz's recordings, field recordings, and then analyzing them by measurement, that came from Kalinsky and Hornbustel. Uh, it was passed down to, to, to Waterman. But then Waterman brought in other things, though, in his thinking, which makes him uh, uniquely interesting, uh, and that included psychology um, and custodians. Yes, that was my, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that was my next thing. I wanted to move to psychology because that was the, uh, seemed to be the other big disciplinary intervention. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So they, they uh, one thing that he got from uh, uh, German scholarship with respect to psychology was specifically Gestalt psychology. Um, and, and in doing that reading, uh, and Kurt Kafka's work in particular, one of the interesting ideas that I read in his work from the early 1920s, actually, on Gestalt psychology, and it was one of his, or his first English language articles that he published to introduce Gestalt psychology to, the, uh, to American scholars, uh, was his idea of subjective assurance. Um, and for my reading of his explanation of this idea of subjective assurance made me think of sound studies today uh, in, in that it connected for me uh, the threads of sound and listening and orienting oneself via through listening 
in space and in time. And so that, for me, became a handy way to return to this idea of modernity, um, the modern space and how that was defined, uh, not necessarily the ideas, but through sound and how people listened and what certain sounds meant at the time for um, comparative musicologists or just casual domestic listeners to records in how they were listening for blackness or something that was art and not art, something from the past and something that was modern. Um, so there's a lot of layers in there, and I hope the readers uh, are able to dig deeper in reading those chapters of the book. But that's how, I, that's how essentially I bring in Gestalt psychology and German psycho psychologists at the time um, who, whose, whose writings were, uh, disseminated through the United States and Richard Waterman did read that stuff. So there's, there's really direct connections to all of this. Um, so the first part of your book, a lot of what you were focusing on was people who were either truly in academia or maybe were allied with academia in some way. Like you talk about some, um, Cuban scholars who, or, or figures who are, uh, uh, delivered some lectures in uh, in 1937 in Cuba, but they all seem to be more academic. But then as you move through the book, you turn to performers like Catherine Dunham as a performer as opposed to as, as an anthropologist or Gillespie or um, Perez Prado, these people. And I'm wondering, why did you move from one to the other? What, what uh, propelled that? Because I wanted to bring in performance into – um, into the analysis of this discourse. I didn't want to limit it to just academics and what they were saying, or even to that extent, um, activists, political activists. Because ultimately, Herskovitz and uh, political activists in the 1940s were engaging artists and performers, and they were collaborating and programming events. Uh, many of which involved the performance of African music um, as a way to to uh, build bridges to American audiences or Cuban audiences as a way to explore the meaning of blackness and how uh, blackness, uh, other ways of understanding blackness at the time, again, both in Havana um, and in the United States. So it was. It wasn't just a matter of bringing in dancers to, in order to explore dancing and what that had to say or what that could teach us. But they were literally collaborating with each other and working with each other. So, like Fernando Ortiz, Salvador Garcia Aguero, you know, they were giving lectures, but on the same program, they had performers, they had musicians and dancers. What do you see as the difference between this understanding of blackness in America and? the understanding or, or use of blackness in Cuba, do you, do you see those as being really different or do you see them as being more similar? I think both. Yeah. I, I'm really, that, that was a tough one for me and it always has been. Um, and I don't know how deep I should get into this <laughs> because it goes beyond the book really. Um, and if you're, listeners are interested, I think they could find a book review or two that I've written um, and where I've, I've always been uncomfortable with the idea that um, 
the history of slavery in Latin America was somehow um, not as bad, un, uh, quote unquote, as in the United States. That, that notion has a complex history um, in scholarship, not only scholarship of Latin America, but Latin American society itself. And I think the, the, the role of Catholicism uh, is an important part of that story, but it's a story. Um, in the end, I don't buy it because slavery is slavery, right? Uh, not being not being equal in the eyes of in the eyes of society is is a reality. Whether you're living in Havana in the late 1700s or in Virginia in the late 1700s. Um, that being said, I think the question of blackness. To get back to your question of blackness, that for that that for sure, uh, the specificities involved in blackness are important to how nationhood is constructed, and that is so. How that unfolded in Cuba is unique to Cuba and different uh, compared to the United States or. Um, or, or, or the Dominican Republic or Brazil. Those are very, very unique histories of blackness and the formation of blackness and its meanings with respect to nationhood and nation building. But to the extent that blackness is interconnected with the history of slavery, that's, that's different for me. And that gets down to the, uh, the inhumanity of slavery uh, that cuts across, I believe, uh, um, national boundaries and also historical periods. So why did you decide to, um, let's see if I can say this correctly. In many of the histories and books that I've read about this subject, um, people focus on the United States and partly that's because I'm an Americanist. That's what I read. But, um, and they, they don't look at the Spanish language press, for instance. Why did you decide to look at um, this to look at this sort of aspect of it in the Caribbean and in Mexico among Spanish speakers in particular? Like, why was that important to bring that in rather than just focusing, saying just on Cuba? Why why take this transnational approach? Um, well, so first of all, with Mamo, it, it was from the beginning of his popularization uh, an international style of music and, and dance. Um, and I try to trace the emergence of Mambo from Cuba to its international popularity, but I don't want to spend too much time on it because it, it happened so quickly and it was everywhere. And it was, it was beyond the Americas, actually. It, it was in Asia. Uh, re- I found reports of Mambo dance competitions um, in the Philippines, um, in, in Europe, of course. So the Mambo, I think, was the perfect and maybe, uh, yeah, the perfect uh, reason to to make this book about, you know, the Americas on one level, and, but then also grounded a lot in the United States and, and, and in Cuba. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if there was another, I think there was another part of your question, though. Oh, I, actually, there was another part of my answer. Uh, the, the, other, the, other, the other reason was getting back to the idea of modernity. The, the idea of modernity, to me, is inherently transnational. Or, or transcends national boundaries uh, totally. 
Um, so, so for example, uh, on the one hand, the construction of, of uh, nationhood or national identity is specific to particular regions or places of the world. But the idea of nationhood, I think, is a modern concept that is global, right? Um, so, so that's just one example. So, 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 yeah, I think modernity was another part of my reason why I needed to not just only look at the United States. However, to circle back to the U.S. for a minute, one of my favorite characters in the book is Catherine Dunham. I felt I really, I really connected with your discussion of her as she comes up several times throughout the book. And um, I, I wonder if you, for, for the people listening, if you could talk a little bit about, you know, her, I mean, all of the people you talk about um, are in sort of a contingent position in some way or another, but uh, Catherine Dunham to me in particular really was trying to straddle a lot of worlds that did not want to be connected very easily. Can you talk a little bit about her and her career and how you position her within your book? Yeah, I, you know, uh, Kristen, of all the case studies, to me, I think I learned the most from researching her work and her life. Um, I could have just stopped at that first chapter where I explore her significance as a student of Herskovitz. Um, but the work that she did in the late 30s and into the 40s screamed out to me. Um, and the more I dug, the more I really learned ultimately about what the book was going to be about, actually. And, and so I guess what I'm saying is, is that she, in many ways, as a case study anyway, is more than just a case study. She, she's also kind of a linchpin to, to the book. And I, and I actually could have said so much about her. She could have actually come, she could have been a, a featured or the main case study in all of the chapters, including the Mambo chapter, actually. Because she what did participate in in film and um, and in other projects that was centered around the Mambo, so she was just tremendously important. And I have uh, I uh, of course I knew about Catherine Dunham before I started this research, but I didn't know just how much she was able to ac- accomplish being African American, being a woman. Um, being a dancer and being a scholar. Do you think that she, do you, do you think she took all of those aspects of her work equally seriously? Or did you, do you think that, um, you know, I, I guess I'm trying to imagine how did she integrate everything that she was doing? <laughs> you know, she seemed like. Yeah, I, I, I think that's the point. I think she didn't see that work in different categories. I think she, she believed that all of those strands of who she was was all the same, whether she was um, whether she was performing as an intellectual, as a choreographer, as a dancer, as a political activist, as a lecturer, as a as a businesswoman, as an educator, all of that was for the same purpose for her, and it was all her and so i think you know in as i'm listening to myself i think she really just deserves a 
more books <laughs> on herself. There's there's plenty published on, on Catherine Dunham, including some new uh, books that, that have come out recently. But she's just a fascinating individual. I mean, she, you, dance study scholars, um, ethnomusicologists, black study scholars, uh, women's study scholars, you know, all of these different areas could learn uh, and are, I, I want to take that back, could learn from her. No, what I meant was could write uh, manuscripts or mo- monographs on her and her career and her importance in all of those areas. Well, just the list that you're talking about shows how siloed um, academia is that, you know, you have to look at all these different disciplines just to get even some kind of 360 view of her, you know, mm-hmm. that she's, yeah. she's infiltrating all of these things, but we're having problems understanding that because of the way that our disciplines work. And Kristen, you know, in a way, and I think I try to make this argument in a way, uh, she, this happened also because of the reality at the time. In other words, if racism and sexism wasn't so intense at the time, um, she might have just become a full-time anthropologist, dance scholar, and that's what she might have become. Um, but because of sexism and racism at the time, she needed to do these other things in order to survive and to do what she wanted to do right at the same time. So she also had to become a dancer, but she never stopped being an intellectual and a scholar. So that's why she started her school um, in the 1940s in New York, which was remarkable. Um, that's why she then also become a, uh, continued to become a choreographer, choreographer because she was an artist too. In so many ways, she's, she she's the she's she pre she anticipates what later on in the later much later in the twentieth century what performance scholars become and are today, right? They perform, they study performance. Um, and they write about it, but they also create art too. And that's what she was doing. But there was no place for her, especially in academia at the time, uh, for someone to do that to, uh, on top of the fact that she was a, a woman and African-American. Well, actually, when you were speaking that I thought of that, that she, she was clearly, she seemed like the model for a lot of people that are doing that kind of work now, but um, it was sort of unprecedented for, for her time period, for sure. Um. And to turn to one other thing as we're uh, continue through the book, one of the um, things that I also found interesting is that you pointed out some works of art, mostly by um, African Americans, but not all, that took this evolutionary perspective, like A Star of Ethiopia by W.E.B. Du Bois, for instance, or uh, um, some other works where you know they start off in Africa and then they move to the present. And... Um, uh, so my own work, which is a little bit earlier than yours, I've seen stuff that does, does that back to vaudeville acts in the 1890s. Can you talk a little bit about this sort of, you know, how you read these, I, I think of them as the evolution of the Negro kind of works that um, start with uh, people, in, start in Africa and then move to the present. What, how do you understand that work? Yeah, that, that, that was just yet another... Um another uh, part, uh, another genre of performance, historical pageants, 
um, that I that I encountered in doing the research, um, and it was perfectly uh, reflective of how I was understanding this question of modernity and time and space with respect to black music and dance. Um, so the the examples that I ended up choosing. For example, by uh, as as choreographed by Asadata Defora, Catherine Dunham was also involved in some of these performances. Um, it, it told that exact story that Herskovitz, for example, was also doing his, his scholarship within, and that is the past and the present, and what what, what connected the two, and so Africa. Uh, became then the default of the past, and um, and and I think you use the word evolving through time to modern day black music, which in most instant instances was sounded as jazz music. What was crucial for me, and getting back to your question about why bring in the Caribbean and why bring in Latin America, uh, one other reason was because in these historical pageants uh, and in the performance of these histories, black music of the Caribbean became like the middle part of the story, like the linchpin. Um, it was it was it was African music that had to go through the Caribbean in its arrival in the Americas before it could then evolve. Or or move to the United States and, and evolve into black modern music, which was jazz at the time, right? So I had to I had to make sure to to include the Caribbean and Latin America in, in, in terms of this uh, discursive analysis of of why then uh, was Cuban music, for example, important uh, to this discourse. Um, and so, getting back once again to Herskovitz. This is exactly the reason why he had to go to Suriname um, and then later on Haiti and Trinidad, because he believed that the Caribbean uh, or particular places in the Caribbean were able to uh, preserve that past where where African music first arrived, music and dance and language and religious practices. It wasn't just music and dance that he was interested in. Uh, was able to be retained um, in the in the most rural, non-modern spaces of the Caribbean. So, do you think, uh, you know, in your in your last couple of pages, you talked a little bit about Barack Obama and when he sang "Amazing Grace" uh, at um, a funeral? It's a very sort of famous. Um, moment towards the end of his presidency. But do, do you think that this discourse that you have identified and dug in so deeply in your book, um, and you're really talking, as you said, from the 30s to the 50s, do you think it really has changed all that much? I mean, do you see a, a or, or do you see things be, being quite different now? Um, I, I think both. And I'm sorry not to give you a more straight ahead answer. So what I was trying to do with that in the conclusion, um, so so first of all, let me just say this. I think, and I say this in the introduction to the book, I think it's it's important. It's the, the statement of, or the place of Africa in our imagination, but beyond imagination in our assertion of um, political resistance to racism, for example. 
is important. Um, and that's why Africa continues, the, the idea of Africa continues to be crucial, I believe, to today in resisting racism. So, and, and that was understood at the time as well uh, of, of for many of the case studies that I, I look at in the book, especially those um, like Asadata Defora, um, the uh, members of, or, or just, or African university students that I uh, talk about who were not only studying in university, um, including collaborating with Herskovitz in Northwestern, uh, or else attending old black colleges, uh, but, but at the same time, they were politically active in trying to get support from the American public for the decolonization of African countries, uh, or co- colonies rather, uh, European colonies in Africa through World War II. So, so all of that is very important and remains important for those reasons. Um, but then at the same time, what I'm trying to get at in bringing, bringing those uh, final examples in the conclusion is, is, is the idea of being aware of how we use history for political purposes. Um, and in, in using history, what gets written out in order for us to, to, to do the political work that we're intending to accomplish by reaching back in history. Well, thank you so much for talking to to me today about your book, and I hope that people who listen to this will be inspired to go on and read it because there's, it's a very complicated book, and there's a lot more there that we don't have time to get into. But thank you so much for participating in this interview. It was great to talk to you. Thank you, Kristen. It was a pleasure. <laughs>